Revolution is not being televised, but it is being digitized right here on Digital Village. On 90.7 FM KPFK. I'm Rick Allen. And I'm Brittany Gallagher. On this week's episode of Digital Village, reporter Leilani Albano talks to the EFF's Danny O'Brien about the NSA's EU surveillance. But first, I'm joined by Dr. Tim Tanglerini, a professor in the Scandinavian department at UC Berkeley. He was formerly at UCLA, where he collaborated with colleagues in the computer science department, namely Ronnie Rochaudry, and they wrote a paper called An Automated Pipeline for the Discovery of Conspiracy and Conspiracy Theory Narrative Frameworks. In our conversation, we talk about the different between a conspiracy and a conspiracy theory, how conspiracy theory narratives fall apart computationally, and what we can do to slow the spread of a conspiracy theory. But we start with Dr. Tanglerini's background in folklore. I've always been very interested in what have been called personal experience narratives or stories that are told as true. A lot of our everyday life is structured as stories. We think in the context of stories, things have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And I was fascinated by this idea that part of our way of seeing the world is constructed through what turn out to be fairly simple stories. I started off studying folklore and mythology as an undergraduate. Then I moved on to graduate studies in Scandinavian studies in general, but continued to be focused on storytelling largely among 19th century, late 19th century, early 20th century Danes, largely because we had an extraordinary corpus of these stories. So close to 300,000 stories told by maybe five or 6,000 Danes who I could identify. And so I wanted to look at how people were using storytelling, both traditional storytelling and storytelling that was more contemporaneous as part of their negotiation of what I call cultural ideology. Cultural ideology being the norms, beliefs, and values that we're constantly negotiating with other members of our group, but which at some level of abstraction can be seen as the foundations of culture. And I think we use stories and storytelling as one of the ways that we negotiate that. Could you give us an overview of the structure of these everyday narratives and how those are the basis for conspiracy theories? A lot of times they're structured as, I'll start a story by talking about something that we're both familiar with. I might say, hey, Brittany, did you hear what happened to Bob last weekend? And so that's an abstract. You might say, no, I I don't. And then I give you, well, this happened last weekend. Bob was up in the mountains. And I give you this orientation that allows you to see the story as being about us. And then something happens and it's usually a threat or some disruption. And the person who's a representative of us in the story has to come up with a strategy for dealing with that threat. And then they apply that strategy and it either fails or it's successful. In some ways, I I call this the Ghostbusters question. You recall the theme song for Ghostbusters, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and it asks it asks a very important question. And do you recall what the question is? Who are you going to call? Yeah. It says when ghosts appear in the neighborhood, so when there's some threat or disruption, what are you going to do about it? And so that's really the structure of a lot of these threat narratives that lay the basis for not only rumors, but what I call legends, which are stories told as true, believable narratives, often highly localized, highly set in the historical present, that ask some question. There's some threat, there's some disruption, 
what are you going to do about it? And then it explores the outcome of that. So how do we get from there to conspiracy theories? Well, conspiracy theories seem to be about some threat and various strategies for dealing with that threat. And as we started to think about conspiracy theories, we realized that whenever there's a threat and a strategy, there's often another threat that thwarts that strategy. So there was something going on in the structure of conspiracy theories that relied heavily on rumor, but were perhaps a little bit more iterative. How do you take this structure and look at it computationally? We were sitting around and saying, how could we, we work with this computationally? Is there something that we can formalize about these stories that we could then capture in this large, unlabeled free-for-all, which we call social media? And this could be anything from Reddit to 4chan to 8chan to, to any of these areas where people are instantly posting little bits of stories and negotiating possible strategies and outcomes. So that's what motivated us to look at conspiracy theories. And then we thought, well, we've got to have some weight to that. We have to have some foil to the conspiracy theory. But what would be a good foil to a conspiracy theory? Well, a conspiracy would be, wouldn't it? Right? A conspiracy actually happened. A conspiracy theory only occurs in narrative. So we started looking for something that would be a good foil for each other. And fortunately, we found both Bridgegate and Pizzagate. So that's when we started the computational challenge, which was how do we gather the information and then how do we extract from all of this noisy data the underlying narrative framework? And at that point, we can start to question the structure of that narrative. In the paper, you compared a conspiracy, which was proven to be true, Bridgegate, that happened back in September 2013, where people in then-Governor Chris Christie's office in New Jersey conspired to shut down on-ramps to the George Washington Bridge, causing a week's worth of traffic chaos in Fort Lee. And this was because Fort Lee's mayor refused to endorse Chris Christie. Of course, it takes years for an entire conspiracy to be uncovered through investigative reporting, etc. And so you took that and compared it to the conspiracy theory of Pizzagate, which I'll let you describe. Yeah. Pizzagate, on the other hand, springs almost fully formed in the week leading up to the 2016 presidential elections and is predicated on the WikiLeaks dump of DNC emails, predominantly the emails of John Podesta. And through the imaginative interpretation, the Pizzagate folk are able to link the Podestas to a pizza parlor called Comet Ping Pong, owned by James Alephantis, who had thrown some fundraisers for Hillary Clinton. And it brought in all of these different groups, as well as this idea that the Democrats were involved in a human trafficking operation of children as part of a satanic, pedophilic, cannibalistic cult. Those are the two opposing narratives. And our goal was can we do at least as well as the New York Times, which had drawn these power network graphs of the different actors involved and the relationships between them, both for Bridgegate, which is an actual conspiracy, and Pizzagate, which is a conspiracy theory, exists only in narrative. And so these illustrations were inspired by Mark Lombardi, an artist who drew different power network graphs of different conspiracies or conspiracy theories 
are actually a very interesting way of representing complex narratives. So the idea, which is in some ways a formalization of Algirdas Gramatz's idea of actants and interactant relationships, proposes that in the network, the nodes would be the actants. These are people, places, things. And the edges between those nodes or the lines between the dots in a network graph would be the relationships between them. So then our challenge is given some large corpus, how can we jointly estimate the underlying network graph that we call the narrative framework, which in turn can be seen as a generative model. That is to say, if you were with some probability to choose a series of actants and their existing relationships, you could generate a post or a part of a story, or in fact, the entire story that would be fully acceptable to all of the people who've been posting and contributing to this crowdsourced story ahead of time. What did you find that was different between the conspiracy, which is true, Bridgegate, and the conspiracy theory, Pizzagate? We discovered some very interesting structural features, both of the conspiracy theory and the conspiracy. Apart from the fact that the conspiracy had many more nodes and many more edges than the conspiracy theory, what we found was that the conspiracy, the actual real-world event, was robust to deletions. That is to say, once we generated this network, there were so many nodes and, and connections, and they were all from a single domain, that we could delete nodes and edges without causing the network to fracture. That was fundamentally different than the network structure of the conspiracy theory, where the WikiLeaks nodes and edges actually took otherwise disparate communities or domains, like the domain of democratic politics or the domain of casual dining or the domain of the Podesta brothers, or also the domain of satanic cannibalism. And it aligned them in such a way that if we deleted the WikiLeaks nodes and edges, all of those domains would separate. They would no longer be part of a large connected component, and they would be as unattached from each other as they would be normally. It's really the secret knowledge or the interpretation of the special knowledge available through the WikiLeaks graph that allows Hillary Clinton to play multiple roles in different domains. But if you take out WikiLeaks, Pizzagate completely falls apart. There's nothing that you can take out in Bridgegate for it to fall apart. It's like for better or worse, New Jersey politics will continue to be New Jersey politics. And so that was actually uh, a very interesting finding. And one of the key points that fundamentally distinguishes the conspiracy theory from the conspiracy. This brings me to the conspiracy theory at QAnon, which really seemed to be born out of Pizzagate, or at least there seems to be quite a few similarities. Could you talk about QAnon as a narrative? QAnon is this idea that there are a group of elites, democratic operatives, Hollywood superstars, members of, quote, the deep state who are actively engaged in child trafficking. And that child trafficking is to feed this cannibalistic satanic cabal. And as soon as you bring that in, you also start to bring in many of the anti-Semitic tropes that we are also familiar with from other conspiracy theories. Now, the perfect conspiracy theory is able to align 
infinite domains or all domains of human interaction. And so again, it's very similar to Pizzagate on a grander scale. But once you have the method, that is to say, once you're able to align actant from domain one, let's call it democratic politics, with that same actant in a different domain, let's call it satanic cannibalistic ritual murder, then it really is not that hard to find other alignments in other domains, particularly if you have the secret knowledge that Q is spurting out from time to time in the form of these drops, which then allow the bakers to interpret it, right? And so they spend a lot of time negotiating the interpretation of a particular drop, and that allows them to bring in other domains of interaction, other pre-existing narratives. Once you've got a pre-existing narrative, it's great if you can bring that in and make some connection to it, because now you've got this three-dimensional method going where you take one domain that has an underlying narrative framework, and you're aligning that with the narrative framework from another domain. And so you've got this almost these pins going through all of these different, you can imagine a bunch of plates stacked up, and each plate has got a little narrative network on it. And you're just going to find all of those nodes that are shared between two plates. But as long as you can find a node between two plates, you can align those plates. And pretty soon you've got a stack of plates that you can then balance and form your very tall stack uh, of plates going all the way up, as it were. Yeah, Q seems to play at people's desires to be quote unquote in the know. And with people being home more, Q certainly seems to be becoming less of a fringe topic. Right. So this is partly why Q is such a compelling figure. It's like he's got special access to this secret knowledge. He's got Q level clearance. Uh, so he has access to some compartmentalized information. The other thing, of course, that's very interesting and important to recognize is that the disconnect or the previous distance between online discussions and real world action has been collapsed, I think, probably first by Pizzagate, where Edgar Welsh goes to a family restaurant, heavily armed, and starts shooting. This is no longer, oh, it's your crazy uncle with the aluminum hat on. It's actually all the way up to the president who is either deliberately or inadvertently doing things that the people in these communities pick up on. And I think it's not even inadvertent or implicit at this point. It's even become explicit with his comments of the past few days about QAnon. We can't dismiss this narrative negotiation anymore as uh, a fringe phenomenon. It's front and center, and it has incredible impact on both public safety, but also our democracy. There's been a lot of conspiracy theories around COVID-19. Have you looked at those? We're also now looking at COVID-19 and been been scraping all of the stories that are on both Reddit and 4chan and some of the other chans. And we're discovering two phenomena. One is that apart from the fact that our, our software works, we're discovering QAnon coming in and, and trying to capaciously grab onto some of the narrative frameworks that were emerging. But there are also two uh, very clear competing narrative frameworks. One is that the uh, the virus is a deliberate release of a bioweapon. And the other one is that it's a complete hoax. So those are the two different narratives that are emerging in this space. And they also break apart 
quite easily, like our conspiracy theory narratives did with with Pizzagate. I'm, I'm pretty sure that with QAnon, if you remove the Q breadcrumbs, that will also break apart into a series of fractured and much smaller subnetworks. Yeah, absolutely. So then this begs the question. Facebook has recently said it was going to start cracking down on QAnon content. And to be frank, they've allowed this to go on for quite some time. Q has really blown up on Facebook. My question to you is, what can we do about it? And are we too late? I think one of the things that we have to be cognizant of is that you can't unsee or unhear something. We have this idea of susceptible, infected, recovered, and then susceptible again. Now, with ideas, a lot of times you're susceptible, then you're infected with the idea. And even if you reject the idea, you're still going to carry that idea around with you. So once these things get out into wide circulation, it's almost like you can't unsee it. There is a a fundamental difference between just making things up, which is what a conspiracy theory is, and actual conspiracies, right, which are true life events. So maybe if we can start to understand the processes by which these things emerge, we can recognize them as they are emerging. The other problem, of course, is one that you put your finger right on, and that is the incredible reach and the incredible speed of social media. A lot of the consideration, the time for reflection has been eliminated, and so people are amplifying the signals that would otherwise be dampened in a face-to-face communication system. The stories come through without any perturbation to the story itself, right? Which is what we would see if we were telling stories to each other at a bar or around a campfire. You'd be like, oh, that's not how the story goes. We'd all be negotiating the story, but here it's fully formed. And the other thing, of course, is the way it's being transmitted. It's one to many, but it's not one to 10, it's one to 10,000. And so there's that velocity and amplification of the signal that we have to try to understand the implication. This has been only around for the past 10 years, really, 15 years at most. It's a new phenomenon, and we're, we're trying to understand it. Right. I understand it's a new phenomenon, but really, we need to start thinking about what we can do about this. So what are some ideas that you have? So what can we do about it? I don't think there's any one thing that we can do about it. I think that what we're going to have to do is multiple things. If we can discover the emergence of conspiracy theory-like narratives and discover that in effectively real time, which we're working on now, we'll be able to alert social media to the emergence of these things so that they can dampen. I wouldn't want them to stop, but you can delay the speed at which these things post. Maybe that would be a strategy. Another one would be if we do see a conspiracy theory that is now proposing violent strategies for dealing with the threat, for example, we saw before people were attacking 5G cell towers, we already saw that as being a proposed strategy in the social media. If you could alert public safety or some other groups that you might come under attack, that would be a way to avoid the worst repercussions of this. And then for different communities, you might be able to start coming up with more directed narratives that recognize their fears and recognize their perfectly legitimate concerns, but also propose things that are more truthful. A multi-pronged strategy, I think, is what's going to do best for our democratic institutions. The whole goal is to allow people to preserve their rights to freedom of expression and free speech 
and also the pursuit of happiness, but do it in a way that is safe and cognizant of everybody's rights. So we really want freedom of expression, but we don't want a freedom of expression to be drowned out by deliberate manipulations of our commons. That was Dr. Tim Tanglerini talking about conspiracy and conspiracy theory narratives, and importantly, how we can slow the spread of conspiracy theories like QAnon. Let's remind everyone that you're listening to Fearless Radio here on Digital Village on 90.7 FM KPFK. Digital Village has been bringing you the cyber news stories and in-depth interviews you won't hear anywhere else to help you navigate the latest in digital technology. Including the information needed to help you guarantee fair vote keep the internet neutral, and protect yourself online, especially during these challenging times. So please take the important step of giving a gift to help KPFK continue to bring you today, as always, not only information, news, and culture, but also the sense of solace, joy, relief, and community you've come to expect from us. You can donate right now to keep this glorious, independent, listener-sponsored radio flourishing. By going to kpfk.org forward slash pledge, where you will find a list of ways to do so. Thanks Thanks again. In a win for cyber privacy, the European Union ruled that NSA surveillance is incompatible with EU privacy rules. The latest decision invalidates the Privacy Shield, that international agreement governing data flow between the U.S. and EU. Activists say European citizens have had no real recourse if their data information is swept up by U.S. surveillance programs, and the U.S. provides no data protections. Will the new decision encourage the U.S. government to enforce data protections and fix its surveillance problem? Or will it maintain the status quo? With us to answer these questions and more is Electronic Frontier Foundation Director of Strategy, Danny O'Brien. He spoke with KPFK's Digital Village reporter, Leilani Albano. In its latest decision, the European Union's high courts have ruled that NSA surveillance is incompatible with EU privacy rules. Why is this the case, and what kind of ramifications will this have on European citizens? Well, it's been an interesting passage through the European court. Generally speaking, those courts have not really determined the rightness or wrongness of a country's behavior. But because of the EU's data protection laws, including the famous GDPR, they do have control over whether EU citizens can have their personal data transferred by companies to other jurisdictions. The idea is is that if companies are moving personal data outside of Europe, they have to give it the same kind of privacy protections as European companies have to do in European countries. And it was the decision of the court that U.S. companies simply can't provide those kind of protections because of the mass surveillance programs that the NSA conducts on European citizens when their data is held in the U.S. It's like a strategic means of dealing with the fact that Europeans don't really have much recourse in terms of dealing with NSA surveillance. Absolutely. One of the things that the GDPR and the human rights values that underlie the GDPR is you should have a right of redress, which is to say if you feel that your data has been used in a way that isn't necessary and proportionate, then you should be able to have your day in court. 
And it's very hard for a European citizen to have their day in a U.S. court, not least because under U.S. law, foreign nationals don't have the same kind of privacy rights that U.S. citizens and folks on U.S. soil have. The 2020 court case is the second brought by Austrian activist Max Schrems. What was the basis for the original ruling in 2015, and was the latest outcome any different? The basis for the decision in 2015 was more or less exactly the same. So what we're getting into here is this strange infinite loop where Max takes a case, the top court of the land, the Supreme Court, as it were, of the EU, says, nope, that's illegal. It goes back. Everybody who's in charge of enforcing that decision scrolled around and said, well, that may be illegal, but perhaps this new thing we've invented won't be. And so they moved from the safe harbor to this privacy shield model. And then the same questions crop up. They get chased up through the courts to the European Court of Justice at the very top. And the European Court of Justice says, did you not listen to what we said five years ago? And the question is, is how long can this go on before the real nitty-gritty of the problem is solved, which is the U.S.'s government surveillance program on anybody who isn't on U.S. soil? Going back to the privacy shield, which was largely self-regulatory. Tell us the reasons for ending the privacy shield. Was it really about PRISM and Upstream? Originally, there was, there was a privacy safe harbor, and that was seen very much in the early 2000s as a commercial guarantee. It was an attempt to take the commercial rules around data protection, around privacy, and extend it into the U.S. The Privacy Shield was hastily constructed after that collapse because of the original Schrems case. And that original Schrems case did, in fact, boil down to uh, concern about some of the programs that were revealed by Edward Snowden in the leaks that he revealed. So, yes, the Privacy Shield fell because of NSA surveillance. This new Schrems case is actually revolved around alternatives to the privacy shield that some companies use, as essentially kind of contractual agreements that enable them not to sign up to the privacy shield. And the case went to the European court because the regulators weren't sure that they could subject that kind of agreement to the same kind of analysis that had undermined the original safe harbor. And the European Court of Justice said, yes, you absolutely should examine this. Oh, and while we're here, that whole privacy shield thing that you tried to erect to allow data to go avoid our previous judgment, that's out of bounds too. So we're getting rid of that. So it really was the, the European court smacking down everybody's attempt to evade its previous ruling five years ago. While some are lauding SHREM 2 as bolstering digital privacy, others say it will have damaging effects on transatlantic trade between the U.S. and EU. What are your thoughts in terms of imposing a strict adherence to digital privacy? Won't that possibly cut into profits? I think what we see on both sides of the Atlantic is an increasing level of popular discontent with the amount of data collected and the amount of groups, including governments, that have access to personal data. What we haven't really seen is good, powerful, democratic ways of tackling that. Even though individuals on either side of the political divide share concerns about this, politicians haven't really been eager to pass laws controlling government programs or even 
corporate surveillance. What they do see in the Shrimps case is an example of another part of government, which is to say the European court, attempting to do something about that. I think we might see the same thing happening in the U.S. I think the U.S. courts are also getting increasingly disturbed by this level of privacy invasion and are beginning to step up their oversight, too, of these surveillance programs. What are your predictions for Europe? Will they continue to engage in digital trade with the U.S. if NSA surveillance continues? Or do you think that they're going to go in the way of localizing their data? I think a lot of countries have moved towards this model of if it's our individual personal data that you're collecting, you have to keep it on our soil. That turns this into a bit of a digital trade war. I think the thing to note here, though, is that doesn't really solve the problem if you're trying to protect against U.S. mass surveillance programs or the surveillance programs of any country, to be honest, because it doesn't really matter where the data is kept. That data can still be spied on and collected by determined enough intelligence agencies. I think that the important thing here is that this is seen as a punishment that's aimed at one of America's biggest industries now. And hopefully uh, the response will be to kind of fix the problem that companies and countries being punished for rather than stumble into an increasing escalation where one country punishes another and that country punishes back and we end up in a world where We have far more borders, even in the digital environment. That was Danny O'Brien, Electronic Frontier Foundation's Director of Strategy. He spoke with KPFK's Digital Village reporter, Leilani Elbano. That's it for this week's edition of Digital Village. You can hear this episode again by subscribing to our podcast or going to kpfk.org and click audio archives and search for Digital Village. You can also follow us on all things social at Digital V Radio or at digitalvillage.org. A special thank you to Digital Village reporter Leilani Albano. You can, of course, pledge your support to this wonderful station, KPFK, online at kpfk.org forward slash pledge. Thanks for listening to Digital Village. I'm Rick Allen. And I'm Brittany Gallagher. And we'll see you online.